0: The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers.
1: Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio, it's Monday morning. My name is Terry. This morning, authors Stephen Bright and James Quack join host Craig Lubo to talk about their book, The Fear of Too Much Justice, where they discuss race, poverty, and the persistence of inequality in the criminal courts. James Quack is the vice chair of the Southern Center of Human Rights, former professor of law at the University of Connecticut, and he wrote Economism. Bad Economics, and the Rise of Inequality. He is also the co-author of The Baseline Scenario, a leading blog on economics and public policy. He lives in Amherst, Massachusetts. Stephen B. Bright currently teaches law at Yale and Georgetown Universities. He was the longtime director of the Southern Center for Human Rights and has won multiple capital cases in the Supreme Court. He's a recipient of the American Bar Association's Thurgood Marshall Award. Stephen B. Bright is a legendary death penalty lawyer. In The Fear of Too Much Justice, Stephen B. Bright and James Kwok offer a heart-wrenching overview of how the criminal legal system fails to live up to the values of equality and justice. The book ranges from poor people squeezed for cash by private probation companies because of trivial violations to people executed in violation of the Constitution despite overwhelming evidence of intellectual disability or mental illness. They also show examples from around the country of places that are making progress toward justice. We'll play our calendar at the midpoint of the hour. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Okay, this, yeah, is, this, is, this, this is, is Greg, Greg Bluebone. Okay. We'll have,
2: we'll have, if you'll, if bear you'll bear with us, with us for a second, second, um, second um, we'll, have we'll have a, a technical thing, thing that we'll fix there. fix
1: there. Go sit back there and look at those guys. I don't have the camera on now. Turn this
2: end off. All right. Um, thank you, Terry. So, as you heard in the intro, the book that uh, Stephen and James wrote is called The Fear of Too Much Justice Race, Poverty, and the Persistence of Inequality. So, we're going to talk about that book. Um, and about some there was a review that i came across online of the book and i want to quote one thing that that reviewer cited Uh, about 70 years ago hugo black who was a supreme court justice at the time wrote quote there can be no equal justice where the kind of trial a man gets depends on the amount of money he has okay um and welcome um stephen and james thank you for having us thank you. okay thank you it's a pleasure to be here so f- first of all y- Um, Stephen, you were the founder of an organization which it looks like James is in now as as vice chair. Tell us a little bit about that organization. Well,
3: sure. The Southern Center for Human Rights is an organization that was founded uh, by a group of ministers and uh, people concerned about the conditions in prisons and jails and the death penalty, Uh, and it was created Uh, to deal with those issues, to deal with capital punishment, and to deal with the unconstitutional conditions and practices in southern jails and prisons. Uh, As we went about our work, and particularly our death penalty work, and we saw that uh, people accused of crimes were often not represented at all, even in very serious cases. Uh, And when they were represented, it was often very perfunctory representation from lawyers who uh, lack the skills and the time, the resources, and very often the inclination to really defend them, uh, we started uh, advocating very strongly for uh, the right to counsel and the right that everybody, no matter what they're accused of, has a right to a competent, capable lawyer uh, because the legal system really can't work if uh, people accused are not represented by, by competent lawyers. Uh, so during the time that I was there, about 35 years, uh, we dealt with a lot of death penalty cases, uh, a lot of really egregious conditions and practices in jails and, and prisons, uh, and the denial of the right to counsel uh, in uh, states. Although we mostly practiced out of Atlanta uh, in states in the southeastern United States.
2: And so you're suggesting that the problem is worse in the southeast states as opposed to elsewhere in the country?
3: Well, I was in Washington, D.C. when I was first asked to take a death penalty case out of Georgia. And I would say that at the time, 1982, when I went to the South, uh, to Atlanta, to the Southern Center, uh, the death penalty was being imposed primarily uh, in the state, as it still is today, in the states of the old Confederacy, Uh, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Texas, uh, those states. Uh, Some of the northern states don't have the death penalty at all. Uh, Some of the ones that do don't sentence anybody to death or carry out any execution. So I would say, with the death penalty in particular, uh, it's really sort of a remnant of slavery. uh, And the fact that the slave states had the death penalty and had to have it because really sending a slave to prison was kind of pointless, uh, while the northern states were abolishing the death penalty or at least limiting it uh, very much. Uh, So The death penalty is much more prominent in the South than any other part of the country. Texas, particularly, has carried out almost six hundred executions. No other state has carried out more than about one hundred and twenty.
2: All right, and since we are broadcasting Kansas and Missouri, I get the impression Missouri is at the top of you know probably top six at least of the states carrying out the death penalty. Is that accurate?
3: Yeah, that's right. Missouri's carried out about a hundred executions. The only states that are really ahead of Missouri are Texas, uh, Oklahoma, which has carried out about 120, Uh, Virginia carried out 113, but then repealed the death penalty. Virginia does not have the death penalty anymore. Uh, And then after that, Missouri. Uh, so Missouri is is up there in terms of uh, having carried out the death penalty. It doesn't have a whole lot of people left on death row, uh, unlike Texas, which has you know 250 people, even though it's carried out all those executions.
4: And Kansas, as you know, has not executed anybody in the in the so-called modern era of the death penalty. I believe it is theoretically a possibility still in Kansas, but um, you know, although Kansas is a very conservative state in many ways, it for a long time it had this tradition of kind of Um, socially liberal republicanism, essentially, which I think has helped prevent the death penalty from becoming a mainstay in Kansas.
2: Right. And I think Kansas has eight people on death row.
3: That sounds right.
2: So, um, So the inequality, part of it is based on what Hugo Black perceived, at least, is financial resources. Now, most states now have a public defender system. Why is that not working?
4: Well, I think there, there are two, a um, couple, couple reasons. One is, you know, first of all, as you know, it's it's most states, I think it's in the high 20s. It's, it's certainly not all of them. So there are many states where... Although, theoretically, if you're a poor person accused of a crime, you have the right to a lawyer, that lawyer will often be appointed by a judge from a list of people willing to represent poor people for very little money. Uh, Even in places with public defender systems, I think there are two major problems. The big one is simply money. So when the Supreme Court said in the 1960s that poor people have the right to a lawyer if they're facing the potential loss of liberty, It never explained how this would be paid for. Um, So states and cities and counties were left to come up with the money on their own. Uh, Again, as you said, many states have established public defender systems, which are the best overall structure for providing indigent defense. Uh, But as you can imagine, this is not really high on the list of constituencies that legislators are uh, eager to please. And so, in times of uh, you know in tight budgetary times, states have always been trying to reduce the amount of funding going to uh, go into public defense. As a result, you have lawyers who often are you know maybe well trained, may, maybe very uh, committed to the cause, but simply have are drowning in caseloads, have many more cases than they can handle competently or even ethically. Often, they lack the kinds of support services they need, investigators, social workers, and so on to provide a complete picture of what happened in a case, and a complete picture of the defendant. Uh, the other problem I'll mention more briefly, I, I think it's less important than money is independence. So the problem there is that uh, public defenders, uh, whether they they are appointed on a county level, or at a state level, they're they're generally appointed by somebody. And it's typically a county commission or the governor. And as a result, they are, um, you know, appointed by political leaders who often have an incentive to portray themselves as being tough on crime. So what happens sometimes is if a, if a chief public defender is too zealous in trying to stand up for the rights of people accused of crimes, so they may find themselves out of a job. We talk about a couple instances of that in the book.
2: All right. The, the two of you c- collaborated in writing this book. So how did the two of you connect and in and come to do that well i'll talk about how
4: we met so um i went to law school relatively late about 15 years ago late in my life i mean and steve was one of my professors so steve teaches a famous class at yale on capital punishment and poverty and race he's taught it at other schools as well he's been teaching it for more than 30 years and there's always a you know uh, more people want to get into the class than can, and I was lucky enough to get in. so I took that class uh, freshman year and you know it had a big impact on me and then my last year of law school, I worked in the capital punishment clinic. so for many years at at Yale, we had a, a clinic where law students would work on real death penalty cases mainly in Connecticut, some of them were federal cases, and I worked on some of the last um, capital cases in Connecticut. Uh, that clinic no longer operates uh, largely because uh, Connecticut repealed its death penalty about about uh, nine years ago, uh, now more like 10 or 11 years ago. Um, so I got to know Steve Len, and then I got involved with the Southern Center. Uh, Steve was still at the Southern Center then I, I'm not an employee, I'm a board member. And we stayed in touch through the years. And uh, so that's how I met Steve. And, um, I knew Steve was working on this book and, you know, we had stayed in touch and I offered to help him
2: help get it over the finish line. Do you have anything to add to that, Steve?
3: Well, no, except that it was just enormously helpful. Uh, James and I meet every year or every year after he was a student or after he graduated from the law school, we would get together and just sort of catch up and what was going on. And as he said, he became very interested in the Southern Center for Human Rights and, and became involved, joined the board, uh, played a very important role there. Uh, and uh, this was enormously helpful uh, to me to sort of have someone to work with on this. And so as, as he said, we sort of pulled it over the finish line and, uh, and got it out June of this year.
2: Okay. Uh, How did you come up with the title, The Fear of Justice?
3: Well, there's an important Supreme Court case, 1987, in which uh, the court considered evidence of the racial disparities in the death penalty as it was inflicted in Georgia. The most comprehensive study that's ever been done of sentencing at any time in the the country Uh, looked at a long period of time and looked at Uh, death sentences in Georgia, and found that uh, you're not much more likely uh, to be sentenced to death in a case where the victim's white uh, than black, uh, much more likely if the defendant is black, uh, and really much more likely uh, if the victim is white and the person accused is black. And that was the case that was before the court, Warren McCluskey. Uh, over four times more likely to get the death penalty because of the racial combination there. And the Supreme Court in deciding that case gave a number of reasons, but one that it gave was, well, if we deal with racial disparities with the death penalty, uh, the next thing we'll be asked to deal with racial disparities with other kinds of sentencing. Uh, And maybe not just with regard to race, but with regard to other factors like gender. Uh, And uh, basically, we don't want to get into that. Uh, And Justice Brennan, in his dissent, it was a close case, 5-4. to Uh, Justice Brennan, in his dissent, said this sounds like the fear of too much justice. Uh, And ever since I read that phrase in that opinion, uh, it sort of seems to me to account for a lot of the things that we talk about in this book, Uh, not just the failure to deal with race discrimination, not only in selecting cases for the death penalty or for other uh, kinds of prosecutorial decisions. but uh, uh, discrimination in jury selection. The issue we talked about a moment ago, uh, right to counsel. That there's a fear that if we really gave people uh, competent public defenders with the resources, the time, everything needed to provide the kind of zealous representation that justice requires, oh boy, if we did that, maybe more people would be acquitted or maybe it'd be more difficult for the prosecution. Uh, mental illness, so we, we know that the way mentally ill people are treated by being dumped into the criminal system is a terrible thing, Uh, but there's just the fear of trying to really deal with that in the kind of comprehensive way that needs to be done. And so that's sort of the theme of the book, and we point out uh, the places where uh, jurisdictions have been reluctant or unwilling uh, to provide a full measure of justice, but we also look at the places where places have, uh, and uh, basically ask the question, why can't we do that everywhere?
4: Yeah, I'd like to add. I just I think it's a it's an appropriate title because when you look at our legal institutions, you know the the Supreme Court building has the words "equal justice under law," um, and the 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 quotation you made earlier from Justice Black, he was obviously a Supreme Court justice, and I think most people probably believe that equality under the law is a central value, or at least should be a central value of our legal system. And, Many of the chapters talk about ways in which we're we're failing at that ideal. And um, what I want to emphasize is that in many of these cases, everyone knows what we should be doing. Like uh, virtually everybody agrees that the kind of representation and trial you get should not depend on how much money you have. Virtually everyone agrees you should not go to jail simply because you are poor. Yet that happened. I mean, there are um, tens, probably hundreds of thousands of people in jail today who would not be there if they had if they had more money. Um, uh, so these are if virtually everyone agrees you should not get a longer sentence if you're black but you know if you look at the facts these things are happening and the the question really has to be why this isn't a questioner uh, again very few people would argue that uh, you should go to jail because you're poor everyone knows it's happening and the question is why are the courts allowing this to continue
2: well one, one of the Key areas where that's a problem is in the bonds. Um, The bail bond system um, definitely favors the wealthy over the poor.
4: Yeah, exactly. So the Supreme Court has said numerous times that uh, essentially you cannot incarcerate somebody solely because of their poverty. Um, Many places have a cash bail system which essentially does that. Now, in principle, the judge is supposed to consider ability to pay when setting um, a cash cash bail. Um, in many states, you can you can refuse to set bail on the grounds of uh, public safety. Um, so, in in many states, that is is allowed for certain kinds of crimes. But in general, um, when setting bail for a someone who's accused of a crime, the judge judge is supposed to consider ability to pay. And in many jurisdictions they simply do not so they they have uh cash bail schedules where the amount of bail depends solely on the crimes with which you are charged um and the results are obvious right so people who are middle class and above uh, walk free people who are poor um, go to jail so first of all that's essentially you've got someone in jail there because they're poor and then if you think about what happens after that if you're in jail you're much more likely to plead guilty uh, especially well, so two things. One is if you're in jail, you're much less likely to be able to um, mount a defense, because it's harder to do things when you're in jail. And then when we're talking about relatively minor crimes, you're much more likely to plead guilty, even if you are factually innocent, simply in order to get out of jail, be able to go on with your life, go back to your job, uh, assuming you still have a job, um, go back to your family, and your your home. Um, So being poor leads first of all to being in jail in the first place and then to higher conviction rates and having a a criminal record as we know has all sorts of negative downstream consequences so you know this is an area that's gotten some attention in recent years and in certain jurisdictions uh, legal organizations have been challenging fixed bail schedules with some success Uh, in houston um, for example uh, it's also received some attention in legislatures, such as in New York, uh, New York, uh, tried to reduce cash bail a few years ago. Um, so when these cases go to court, the the people challenging fixed bail schedules can win because as I've said, you know, the Supreme Court has said you can't lock people up simply because they're poor. Um, but you know, the, the big issue is that the courts should not be doing this in the first place. Um, and yet in many places, they are
2: all right, the results of the inequality that we see, do you have any estimate, if you've studied this, as to what percentage of the prison population is incarcerated for the crimes they did not commit?
3: I don't know that there's any, there's no percentage that uh, I'm aware of with regard to that. I think one thing is it's impossible to know. Uh, We know that there are a disturbing number of people uh, who were convicted, found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, sent to prison. And then 30 years later, DNA testing proved that they were absolutely innocent, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Uh, We know that, you know, 100, somewhere around 190 people sentenced to death which we would certainly hope those would be the cases where we would be most careful in the prosecution and the defense and the judging of a case that uh, 190 so people have been sentenced to death who were found to be completely innocent uh, later on. Uh, In Philadelphia, the district attorney there uh, created a conviction integrity unit to start looking at some of the convictions there to see Uh, the validity of them, and and there's something like 32 people have been exonerated. This is in six years, Uh, 32 people who've been convicted uh, and sentenced, some to death, some to other sentences in Philadelphia. Of course, the prosecutor has access to information that most people don't have. Uh, So this is very disturbing. And as we say, uh, this is the most fundamental question the courts are asked to resolve, who's guilty and who's innocent. Uh, if, If we're not getting that right, Uh, we can just imagine how many other things, like bail, uh, non-capital sentencing, uh, other kinds of issues in these uh, cases are not being handled uh, very well.
2: In regard to some of the problems we discussed earlier relating to the public defender system, two aspects of it. One was the um, staffing, workloads, I don't know which states have done this, but I know there's some states where the state Supreme Courts essentially forced the state to come up with more funding to to staff those offices. Is that something that's continuing to happen, or are we at a standstill on that part of it? No, that's continuing
3: to happen. In fact, Missouri is a good example over and over. Missouri has a very good public defender system, has great dedicated lawyers that are in it. But over and over, uh, it has been in crisis uh, because they're just not the resources. And the public defender caseloads became so great uh, that on several occasions, the uh, the public defender uh director and the board and so forth just said we just cannot do any more cases we're absolutely at capacity uh and the uh, missouri supreme court there were different times and different cases but basically uh ruled that uh, you could not require lawyers to take more cases than it was ethically and constitutionally reasonable for them to have uh and those those issues play out one of the things as Jim's pointed out earlier when the Supreme Court decided in 1963 that everybody had a right to a lawyer, anybody facing loss of liberty has a right to a lawyer, uh, but they didn't say anything about how to pay for it. Uh, And as Robert Kennedy said back at that time, the poor person accused of a crime has no lobby. Uh, So county commissions and state legislatures have not been particularly, uh, you know, not particularly wanted uh, to provide the kind of funding that's necessary Uh, Of course, also back at that time, a relatively small number of people coming before the courts and a relatively small number of people going to prison and jail every year. Now we have mass incarceration. We have over 2 million people in prisons and jails in the country at any one time. Uh, And so this system has just faced an incredible crushing uh, load, which has been tough for prosecutors, tough for judges, but it's been particularly tough uh, for uh, defenders uh, because there, you know, there's going to be good funding for prosecutors. There's going to be funding for judges, but very often uh, there is not the funding that's necessary uh, for uh, providing public defenders or other lawyers to
2: poor people accused of crimes. Okay, when we we're going to take a break in the minute. Oh. Okay. Um, so, it, for those who have just joined us, this is Craig Lubo. And we're talking to James Quak and um, Stephen Bright. And we're talking about their book, Fear of Justice. Title's a little bit longer. Um, and we'll be back shortly.
1: Hi, I'm Janine Jackson, host of Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. Counterspin couldn't exist without stations like KKFI that put community first. We're proud to air every Tuesday evening at 6.30 p.m. And if you miss it, you can find it at kkfi.org. That's Counterspin every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. right here on KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Are you passionate about making a difference in your community? So are we. KKFI's Community Voices series is dedicated to featuring local individuals and organizations that are driving positive change. If you have a story to share or initiative that you want to showcase, we invite you to submit your information at kkfi.org communityvoices community voices. Together let's amplify your impact and inspire others to join the movement. Join us on Community Voices and to share the positive differences made in our communities. Now the calendar for the week of September 11th. Legal Aid of Western Missouri provides free civil legal services to low-income and vulnerable people in Jackson County, Missouri. Interested individuals can call 816-474-6750 to apply. Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America is a very active group of mothers and others. You can learn where their virtual meetings this week will occur at momsdemandaction.org. Monday, September 11th, 6 p.m. online, Issues to Action Night meeting with More Square. This is the best place to get engaged in More Square organizing work around equity issues. For more details, go to moresquare.org. Tuesday, September 12th, 11 a.m., there's a writing group at the D.A.R.E. Center for the Homeless. That's 944 Kentucky, Lawrence, Kansas. Brian Daldorf, who led a writing group at the Douglas County Jail for 20 years, is now a volunteer at the D.A.R.E. Center and is starting a new writing group there, Poets, Rappers, Songwriters, and Dreamers. If you have questions about the writing group, contact Brian at D.A.R.E. Friday, September 15th, 5 to... 11 p.m., Saturday, September 16th, noon to 11 p.m., and Sunday, September 17th, noon to 9.30 p.m., it's Fiesta Hispana KC at the Barney Alice Plaza, 12th and Central, Kansas City, Missouri, hosted by the Greater Kansas City National Hispanic Heritage Committee. Free entry, there's food, live music, and more. A list of services, meals, and hotlines specific to sheltering are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. That list is updated daily. My name is Terry. reminding you that these events and more can be found on the Jaws of Justice radio page on the KKFI website, kkfi.org, as well as the Jaws of Justice Facebook page. Stay safe. Thanks to all our listeners. Stay close to your dial and stay well. No one should ever be wrongfully deprived of their rights to liberty and freedom without just cause. Yet in the past 25 years alone, thousands of people have been wrongfully convicted and sentenced to tens of thousands of years in prison. We'll now return to our show. Stay tuned in to hear more from Craig Lubo speaking with authors Stephen B. Bright and James Quack about their new book, the Fear of Too Much Justice.
2: Okay, thank you for staying with us. You are listening to Jaws of Justice. This is Craig Lubo, and we're talking to Stephen Bright and James Quok uh, about their book, Fear of Too Much Justice. The resources that you would talk about with the public defender system, I kn- know the To a large extent, there's a lot of different resources they don't have. One of you mentioned, like, private investigators as an example before. But the other problem with a lot of these offices is they don't have resources to hire the experts that they need. How much of a problem is that and what is being done about that? Because doesn't that affect their chances for justice just as much as who the attorney is. Well, sure. In today's world, of course, in public
3: defender offices, generally, it's not private investigators, it's that they're investigators on staff. Uh, in a well funded, competent public defender office today, there would be a number of investigators because uh, that's what representing people in criminal cases is all about. Uh, The prosecution has all the evidence. The police respond to the crime. They interview the witnesses. They take pictures. They gather evidence. They do all sorts of things. And it's only later that a person is assigned a lawyer who then has got to come along and find out, does the prosecution have a decent case? Is there other information the prosecutor didn't know? Uh, Are there other witnesses? Uh, And that is a critical part of preparing. And the other, which you mentioned, uh, is that in today's criminal system, Uh, very often the prosecution relies upon expert testimony. Uh, There are all sorts of scientific tests that are done. The DNA evidence is something everybody knows about. If there's uh, biological evidence uh, collected at the scene, and unfortunately that's only about 10% of cases, but if there is, uh, that will be tested. It's not always accurate. There can be issues about how it was collected. There can be issues about how uh, it was determined that it was a match to to the person accused. Uh, but there are other kinds of issues as well. Uh, and if it's going to be an adversary system, that is where the jury and the judge hears both sides of the question, uh, then and very often I, I left out the maybe the most important issue, mental health issues. Uh, very often the question of whether the defendant is competent for trial, uh, whether the person accused even understands what's going on and has the ability uh, to relate to their lawyer. Uh, that requires expert psychologists and psychiatrists, uh, and both sides usually would have them, and often there are issues that have to be decided uh, with regard to those mental health issues. So yes, if one side has all the experts and all the investigative agencies, that is the police and the FBI and all the other law enforcement agencies and all the crime lab and all of that, and the other side has nothing, uh, there's not going to be a fair determination of the facts?
2: In Kansas, as an attorney, if there's a defendant who is not competent, they go through two layers of evaluation. The local county health, mental health center evaluates them first. If they find them not competent, then they go to Larned State Hospital for for further evaluation and treatment. Now, as an attorney, if we believe our client is not competent, we have the ethical obligation to raise the issue. The difficulty is the... um, waiting period for them to go to Larned is currently running approximately a year and a half. And so, in most cases, they're s- s- sitting in jail a year and a half, waiting this to go and see if they're competent. Now, the dilemma is that sometimes, I won't say often, but it's been a fair number of times, and I've had some of those cases. Where by the time they get to Lorna a year and a half later, they've already been incarcerated as long as they would be sentenced to if they were found guilty. So how do you solve that dilemma? Well,
4: I think I mean what you're what you're talking about is a is a tragic example of the larger problem of the lack of mental health services, first of all in the country, and then particularly that are accessible to people who are caught up in the in the criminal legal system. Um, so, you know, one thing that's been in recent years has been amply documented is, uh, you know, two just two um, fundamental facts. One is that uh, the the largest institutions housing people with severe mental illness right now are our country's jails. If you look at the big systems in Los Angeles, and Chicago, and in New York. Um, and that's partly because our our society as a whole has a shortage of, of uh, mental health treatment. And then the, the second fundamental fact is that um, the treatment provided in these facilities is is extremely subpar. Um, so there, it's it's very hard to provide effective therapy in a jail. Often the treatment simply consists of, of medications with the goal of getting people back out on the street as quickly as possible. And then with the you know very predictable result that they will, there's a, hard, a large chance they'll be arrested for some other minor, minor violation and be back in jail within weeks or months. So, I mean, the short answer is that um, we need to devote more resources at just about every step in the, in the process for handling people with, with mental illness, including, as you say, compet- competency determinations one of the bright spots we talk about in the book is the example of Miami, Miami-Dade Miami County, where basically because of the efforts of one visionary judge, there's been kind of a comprehensive overhaul of how law enforcement and the criminal courts deal with people with severe mental illness. So, you know, for example, every essentially every uh, police officer in the county is trained on how to um, deal with people in a mental health crisis, how to de-escalate crises instead of simply um, you know arresting people using a certain amount of force um, and once in the system a priority is placed on diverting people away from prosecution and, and into treatment and um, they've raised a lot of money to build a new facility to actually expand the number of both inpatient beds and outpatient services so I think that you know as I, as I said we need more money for mental health treatment in the country as a whole and I think, the, it's possible for the criminal courts to take a lead because they are, they are shouldering a lot of the burden right now of, of uh, people with severe mental illness um, in our jails and in our courts. And, and there are better solutions um, that can divert people out of jail, out of prosecution, that we should be trying to invest in.
2: And that would seem to be important in terms of what you mentioned with the efforts to train law enforcement on de-escalating and on mental health issues, because many of the police killings that I have seen, read about or seen in the news, seem to stem from their inability or lack of training to work with the mental health population. Is that fair to say? Yeah, you know,
3: that, that, that is very true in Miami. Uh, They, as James said, they trained 7,000 police officers, everybody from the Miami-Dade Police Department, that is the main police department, down to the police uh, departments that go out to schools uh, and so forth. Uh, And they were able, through that work, uh, to decrease the number of people in the jail uh, from around 7,200 people in the jail at one time to around 4,200 people. They saved... Uh, you know, uh, $12 million by, by doing that. Uh, I would just back to your initial point on this, it's absolutely inexcusable anywhere in this country for a person to sit uh, in jail for a year and a half waiting for a mental examination. Uh, and it does not speak well of the judges uh, in um, uh, Kansas for allowing that to happen. That's just, that's just uh, intolerable, uh, but it's an example of how the whole system in some places is underfunded. Uh, and mental health is the is the most critical area uh, where there's a tremendous need uh, to uh, divert people from jails and, and prisons, uh, to evaluate people who come into the system, uh, to figure out ways of dealing with these people that doesn't involve them just being institutionalized uh, because they can't figure out what to do with them. Uh, so there's a there's a need there for the whole system uh to get an infusion of funding so that the mental health system in uh in Kansas can handle those evaluations. That that's critically important.
2: And in, in regard to the DNA that you mentioned a few times, and in particular at one point you mentioned the um Number of cases where defendants are coming forward 20 or 30 years later being exonerated as a result of DNA. But in many, many cases, you know, I don't know what percentage, but possibly the majority of cases, there is no DNA. So, how does one go about getting themselves exonerated if there's no DNA?
4: Well, I mean, the short answer is it's very, very hard. Um, The, you know, we have, I think we have over between two and three thousand uh, exonerations so far, as you say, the vast majority because of DNA. Uh, DNA is present only in certain types of cases. um, And then it also has to be preserved. So in many cases, it has not been preserved. Uh, The kinds of mistakes we see. So when we look at why these these innocent people were convicted, uh, we see the t- same types of mistakes over and over, right? So one is uh, over-reliance on eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses who uh, don't have good memories, basically, uh, junk forensic uh, science, um, jailhouse snitches, um, essentially forced confessions because of uh, police interrogation methods. And then if you look at the, you know, the hundreds of thousands of other cases where people have been convicted, you see many of the same things. Um, Currently, it's very hard for for people to, even if you have a viable claim of evidence, in many jurisdictions, it it can be difficult to to get your day in court. Um, Most states have an avenue whereby if you have newly discovered evidence of factual innocence, you should be able to get a hearing. But in the close cases, uh, the United States Supreme Court has been making it difficult for people to get those hearings. So this is really only, only a problem we can solve at the front end. So, so one example is, you know, you know many of your listeners know about the Brady rule, that prosecutors, prosecutors are supposed to turn over evidence that could exculpate the, the defendant. This rule doesn't work very well because we're depending on the prosecutor to do two things. One is to recognize that this evidence might exculpate the defendant, and, and then second, to have the good faith to actually turn it over. Um, Once the prosecutor has decided they think someone is guilty, it's highly unlikely they're going to think any piece of evidence is exculpatory. And if they don't turn it over, it's highly unlikely anyone will ever find out. Um, So one solution which has been adopted in North Carolina is for the prosecutors to turn over all of their files to the to the defense attorney and just let the defense attorney decide if there's exculpatory evidence in there. But that's a that's one thing that I think would reduce the number of wrongful convictions in the future. Um, But um, yeah, if you don't have if you don't have newly discovered DNA evidence, it's, it's quite difficult today, unfortunately. Here I happen to be this week at Georgetown Law
3: School, and last week we had here at the law school a man named Curtis Crossland, who spent 34 years in prison in Pennsylvania uh, and was exonerated by the Conviction Integrity Unit in Larry Krasner's office, the Philadelphia District Attorney. It's just an example of the point that this was not a case of DNA evidence, uh, but when the prosecutor went back and, and interviewed the witnesses and looked at things that were not disclosed and evaluated the case, it uh, turned out that they had uh, convicted the wrong person. Uh, but very often, most prosecutors' offices don't have conviction integrity units, uh, and even where they do, getting their attention to a particular case uh, is a, is a tall order. Uh, so. Uh, there's no question that we have a lot of people uh, who've been wrongfully convicted, and it's very difficult to get somebody uh, out once they've been wrongfully convicted.
2: In regard to the Conviction Integrity Units, in Wyandotte County in Kansas does have one, and the, I'm not sure if it's St. Louis County or one of the counties next to it has one. Um, Does that make a substantial difference? Are are they being successful at turning up the ones that might be falsely convicted?
3: And they've had a few— It's made a difference in in Philadelphia because there have been 32 people uh, in the six years or so that Larry Krasner has been the district attorney. The thing that uh, you know just recently was a fellow released in Florida after about 35 years, and that was in Tampa, Florida, the district attorney there uh, had set up a conviction integrity unit. They went back through the files. They found out there was some biological evidence that had never been tested. Nobody had access to that evidence except the district attorney. Uh, They tested it and the fellow was exonerated. Uh, Then Governor DeSantis suspends that, or doesn't suspend, removes that prosecutor from office. Uh, But, uh, that would have never happened uh, without that uh, conviction integrity unit and the willingness of uh, the prosecutors to, to go back through the file and, and to look at the case and, and assess it. So uh, they're not the end all and be all, but they certainly
2: uh, in some cases have made a tremendous difference. And we've had a similar situation in Kansas City, in Missouri, Jackson County, where the prosecutor has uncovered evidence and has been convinced that a certain defendant was wrongfully convicted. She files the paperwork and goes and tries to get him released, and there's some bizarre law, and I don't quite understand it, that in Missouri, the, the, the state attorney general has used that to try to block the release of some of those people, and in some cases, after she pretty much clearly has cleared their name, has exonerated them, and it still takes or five years to get them out because of this other law.
4: Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm not familiar with the the specific statute in in Missouri or Kansas. Steve, Steve might be, but. I mean, this is a, um, you know, it reveals two problems, I think. One is that, um, you know, this, the very prosecution office that, that uh, convicted somebody, even if they, they admit, you know, look, we looked back, we made a mistake, we were wrong, we should never have prosecuted this person in the first place. The way our legal systems work, uh, that person can't necessarily walk free. Right? I mean, like someone is technically speaking, you're in you're in prison because a judge sentenced you, and there, and uh, in many states, the mechanisms to overturn a wrongfully imposed sentence are not easy to take advantage of. But then the bigger problem is just the the mindset among many um, prosecutors or attorney generals that the goal is simply to lock up as many people for as as long as possible. And this is this is a, uh, you know, one of the most clear cases in which people clearly are not motivated by justice. I mean, um, and this is this is partly, you know, partly because of the mindset of kinds of people who have these jobs, but um, many of the people who have these jobs, but also it's, you know, it's part of politics. So if you're, um, if you're an attorney general in a state um, that is uh, where the population is very worried about violent crime, often not rationally, but very worried about violent crime, you're afraid of being attacked from the, from the right in your next primary, and you're going to try to just defend every conviction you can. And and that's, you know, one thing we haven't talked about yet today, we've talked about it. in the book at some length is the you know the politicization of both the prosecution and the judiciary and the effects that has on the kind of behavior you see from prosecutors and judges.
2: Okay. The we're down to just a few minutes. The Supreme Court in one case, Jones versus Hendricks, it was a quotation that I printed, I don't know if you're familiar with that case, where Justice Brennan and talks about this um, in one of his, I think it was a dissent. Unfortunately, I can't read the quote because the printer that I used cut off the right margin. So if you're familiar with that, if you can comment on that.
4: On Jones v. Hendricks? Right. That was a recent case, right? Was just, just this year. So, uh, so I, Jones v. Hendricks. That was yeah. the case, I believe, where there's a person who was uh, legally innocent. So, essentially, when he was convicted, um, the prosecution at the time under the law, uh, the prosecution didn't thought that it didn't have to prove a certain element of the crime. And then there was an appellate case much later that said that the prosecution you actually did have to prove you know, that element of the crime, which had to do with Uh, the knowledge of whether whether or not you're allowed to have a gun so here you you have a situation of a person who is legally innocent because of a of an appellate decision that happened many years after he was convicted and he goes to the supreme court and says um i want to um i want to contest my conviction on the grounds that it was not basically the prosecution did not prove every element of this crime uh, the Supreme Court says, uh, no, you can't. And it's, I mean, technically speaking, it was a complicated case. But on another level, it's another example of the Supreme Court, the current Supreme Court, fastening on a technical procedural argument um, in order to avoid doing justice, right? I mean, you have a man who, who everybody agrees um, was not convicted was not um, convicted of all of the elements required for him to be in prison. He's in prison, and the Supreme Court shut the door on him.
2: All right. Um, we just have a minute left. If you get, do you have a website relating to your book? Uh, the website for the book is uh, thefearoftoomuchjustice.com. All right. And uh, so I want to thank you for being on. For those who have just joined us, this is Craig Lubo. We've been talking to uh, James Kwok and Stephen Bright, who wrote the book Fear of Too Much Justice. And uh, we will include your website uh, in our episode description. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you all next week.
4: Thank you very much. Thank
2: you for having us.
5: the main high prison bars in the jailhub if his family got 15 20 30 dollars they could save him from the gallows pole Cause they gon' hang him you don't bring a little money everybody come to see the boy at the huh he was married too he ran upside the jailhouse but it looked for who brought him some Father, come from now, yonder coming, mother. Well, mother, you brought me the silver, my you brought me the gold. What did you bring me, dear mother? Silver from the gallows. Oh, yeah. What did you? Yeah. What did you I brought everything she could rig and scrape. She wasn't gonna let the boy hang. Well, son, I brought you the silver. Son, I brought you the gold. Son, I brought a little everything. Same from a gallows bouquet. I brought it, yes. come his wife, you know she done cleaned out the house. Brought everything but the slot job. Even brought the 12-string guitar. Well, wipe the baby to silver, wipe the baby to gold. Wipe the baby, wipe it. slip it from the gallows pool.
0: We hope you enjoyed today's show, and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff, or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes On the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. Please tune in for the rest of our 9 a.m. weekday lineup with Law and Disorder on Tuesday, Alternative Radio on Wednesday, Cowtown Conversations on Thursday, and Between the Lines at 9 a.m., Followed by Understanding Israel-Palestine at 9.30 a.m. on Fridays. Up next is Monday Morning Medicine Show with Dr. Mike. And at noon, Arts Magazine with Michael Hogue. Stick around for Jazz and Blues in the afternoon. And Eco Radio KC at 6 p.m. Then round out your day south of the border with Fiesta Musicale.